Have you ever watched a movie or a television series um, that's based on historical events? You know, it might, maybe it's a, um, maybe it's a World War II movie, or like maybe the movie that my wife and I watched recently, it's a World War I movie. And, um, and so you have a general idea of, of how things are going to go. You, you have a general idea of how the, at least the, the big, the big picture, the big story of, of, of that movie or that series is going to end. I hope that when you watch those things, it doesn't spoil it for you. Uh, I remember a movie that came out in 1997. Um, my wife and I went to, to see it. We were, we were newlyweds. Uh, we, um, we went to see it probably, the two of us, I, I don't know why, but we went to see it about three or four times. My wife went to see it two or three other times with friends. I don't, I, I, again, I, I look back on it, it's, it's one of the things that I regret about being a young man, is that I went to see the movie Titanic that many times. But there's something about that movie, the story of that movie, right? And, and it, just, it just sucked, sucked the, the, the viewers in, and, and they, they were amazed by the spectacle, this, this story uh, that tells a historical event, and then kind of weaves this romance in, um, and, you, and you get all of these things going on. Well, if you're going to watch the Titanic, and you're on the edge of your seat wondering, are they going to save the ship? Will it sink or will, they, will, it, will it float? You're going to be disappointed because the Titanic sinks. And we all know that. I mean, we know how the movie is going to end. The Titanic is going to go down. The ship is going to sink. But what we don't know is who is going to survive. Which characters in the story are going to survive this historical tragedy. We don't know that, right? Well, it's the same with us living here and now. We have the advantage. We have, as Christians, an advantage. We can look at the end of the story. God has revealed to us how this thing is going to end. And in a sense, he's saying, this world, this Titanic is going to sink. Who is going to be saved? Who is going to be rescued? The way they put it in Revelation is, who is going to stand? That's what we're going to look at today. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 17. This, this vision, Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 to 17, of who will stand at the end. So, if you have your Bibles, I would love to invite you to stand with me, if you would, in honor of God's Word. Um, if, you, if you need to sit for any reason, please do. But, but stand if you're able with me, and we will look at this together. I will read it aloud as you follow along. Revelation chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed, 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 from the tribe of Gad, 12,000 from the tribe of Asher, 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi. 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. 
After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for being our, our good, glorious God. Thank you that your throne will never be toppled, that you will reign forever. And God, you have made a way for us to be rescued and transformed and to stand before you as we have seen in this, your word to us today. Lord, I just pray that you will motivate our hearts to love you, to serve you, to worship you, and to do all we can to bring the good news to people so they can be rescued and transformed by you as well. Lord, I pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you please be seated? Last week, last week we looked at our commander's intent. We looked at the commander's intent from what's, what's typically called the Great Commission in Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. And we looked there and we saw that our commander's intent, our king's intent, what he desires for us to do and to be is disciples who make disciples. And we, we have restated that uh, as a church, in-house, we've restated that in, in, a, in a slightly different way so we could sort of um, flesh out that whole process of, of bringing people into uh, God's family by disciple-making. And, and we've sort of put it this way, to glorify God by being a church of disciples who make disciples persevering in the rescue and transformation of people far from God through the prayerful proclamation of the good news of Jesus. And that's, I said it last week, that's a little bit of a mouthful, but over the next few weeks, we're going to kind of take a look at that statement. That, that statement is a here and now statement about what we ought to be doing. As long as we have breath, as long as we're living here on this earth, waiting for the time that we cross over Jordan, so to speak, and we go to be with God face to face, that is our mission. That's a here and now statement. But within that here and now statement, there's something that forecasts a future. There's that, that, that first phrase, to glorify God by being a church of disciples, that phrase right there is not something we're going to stop doing. We're going to end up in the pages of Revelation standing before the throne and before the Lamb and we're going to be worshiping God. We are going to be glorifying Him as His rescued and transformed people. As His church of disciples. And that's what Revelation 7 points us to. It points us to that ultimate future, that ultimate end, or that ultimate goal. And, I, and maybe we could put it this way. 
God's ultimate plan for creation is for His Son, Jesus, to be worshipped, think glorified, by those who have been rescued and transformed by Him. Nope. Go back, go back. Let me say that again. God's ultimate plan for creation is for His Son Jesus to be worshipped by those who have been rescued and transformed by Him. Do you see that there? There you go. Keep it up there for a while, alright? Keep it up. That's important. That's where we're going. That's God's ultimate plan. Did you know that that was His plan for you? Well, now I've just revealed it to you. Now you know. That's what He wants for you. He wants you to be there at the throne before the Lamb. I'm... You might need to know this. The Lamb is Jesus, okay? Jesus. The Lamb is Jesus. And we're going to be before the throne. And we're going to be gathered around that throne. All of His people who have been rescued and transformed. And we will be worshiping Him. We will be serving Him. We will be giving glory to Him. There's much more to it than that. There's, there's much. I don't know what that's going to be like. I don't know what day and night is going to be. We know there's not going to be any night because he says there's not going to be any sun scorching us. The, the lamb is going to, and the throne is going to be our light. I don't know how day and night is going to, I don't know how we're going to pass the time, so to speak. But I do know this. We're going to be in his presence. And we're going to be glorifying him forever. That's our goal. That's what we're supposed to be all about. That's what we're, that's what everything we're doing is culminating in. So, I want us to talk about that. I want us to think about that. As we, I mean, we had our mission statement last week. Go make disciples. But before we start getting into the nitty-gritty, what's a disciple? How do we make disciples? Where do we make disciples? What is this all about? Before we answer some of those questions, I want us to answer this essential question. Why are we doing this thing? Why? Why make disciples? So, that's, that's where we're at today. And that's the big idea, right there. That's, that's what we want to think about today. And in Revelation chapter 7, the, those who are worshiping Jesus, those who are rescued and transformed, are described as those standing. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And so, the first thing I want us to see about them is this. Those who stand before the throne and before the Lamb have been rescued by Him. Those who stand before the throne and before the Lamb have been rescued by Him. So, chapter 7 of Revelation, like a lot of Revelation, has a lot of fantastic imagery and, and all of these kind of... This is actually one of the more mild scenes in Revelation 7. If you would like to flip back and, and peruse through chapter 6, you will see the story or the vision of the seven seals. The seals being opened. And those seals get opened and the beginning of the seals is the first horseman of the apocalypse. Okay, you've probably heard about that or seen references to that in popular culture. And it sounds scary and it sounds crazy and it sounds like, oh no, this is terrible. Well, guess what? It is. It is terrible. Revelation chapter 6 is terrible. It's awful. It's the seals of judgment. The seals are being opened and every seal of that scroll that is opened reveals judgment. The Titanic is sinking. It is going down. And so these four horsemen come, and these, this earthquake comes, and these, these people are dying, and these people are suffering, and, and they're wondering, what can we do? And at the end of chapter 6, the, the, all of the people, it says, the kings of the earth, and the great ones, the generals, the rich and the powerful, and then he says, and everyone, slave and free... Not just the big important people, but every person hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called on the mountains and rocks. They said, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. The wrath of the Lamb? 
The lamb is soft and cuddly. That's Jesus. He loves us. Right? Hmm. Revelation shows us that God, all, all aspects of God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are collaborating, working together as the Trinity to end injustice, to end evil, to end rebellion. And it's a frightening picture. It really is. And it's meant to be that. It's meant to show us how serious this is. Don't get distracted by the love story of Titanic. I'm thinking about Titanic again. The ship is going down and people are going to die. That's why it's so tragic. And here, here they're saying, fall on us, keep us from the one seated on the throne and from the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And the question that they ask is so important. And who can stand? Who can stand? Who can stand in this? Who can stand in the midst of all this devastation? I find myself asking that kind of a question often in this world. Who can stand? Who can live? Who can be? Who can survive all of the craziness that goes on in this world? I mean, how are we going to get along? I tell you, it's not just about people who have uh, these radically different views. It's not Christians and Muslims who are fighting. I see Christians and Christians fighting all the time. It's not just Americans and Europeans or Americans and, and countries in Asia or, or in Africa or in the Middle East that are fighting. It's the people in our own country. Who can stand in the midst of all of this chaos and all of this terrible stuff that's going on? Maybe by thinking through a little bit of that, we'll have a sense of the kind of desperation these people were feeling. But it wasn't just a, I feel bad because people are offensive to me. It's, death is all around us. How can we stand in the midst of all of this? The question about who can stand is answered in chapter 7. But you have to wait until verse 9 to see it, right? What do you see in verse 9? Look with John. He's looking. He says, I looked and I saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes and peoples and languages standing. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Who can stand? Well, these people can stand. These people right here, these people right here can stand before them. They can withstand the judgment. And that's what's going on as we go from chapter 6 to verse 7. In verse 7, he sees four angels at the four corners of the earth holding back the four winds of the earth that no wind may blow on earth or sea or against any tree. And, and you might be thinking, okay, no wind, big deal. Um, if you live in Ellensburg or if you spend any time in Ellensburg, you would think, no wind? Wow, it's like heaven! Okay, only people from Ellensburg might understand that because they are tormented day and night by wind. And it's, it, it's a terrible existence that they live in. Um, we're praying for them constantly. But this is not just a, a, a heavy breeze. And this is not just, oh, the wind might blow down some tree limbs and they might file, fall on my car and I'll have to call my state farm agent. This is wind that is going to harm Wind that will harm the sea and the trees. That will harm... This is wind that was alluded to in chapter 6. When there's a great earthquake and the sun is blackened and the moon is like blood and the stars from the sun. And then he says, as the fig trees shed its winter fruit when shaken by a wind. And, and that wind imagery is already being used in the, in the judgments. So what he's saying here is this wind, these four winds of the earth. He's saying those winds are meant to go throughout the world and to judge the world. But wait, 
But wait, God says through an angel, an angel speaks and says, I have my servants on this world. My servants, hold the winds back. Don't let the servants of God be harmed. Wait until I seal the servants with the seal of God. They are not to be harmed. They are not to be judged. They are to be protected. And so, the, uh, the, the revelation shows us, uh, John sees this angel with the seal of the living God, who's saying, we are going to seal the servants of God on their foreheads. This seal is a, a common instrument in ancient time, both Old and New Testament. It's very similar. In fact, in many ways, the idea of a seal is, is very similar today. Uh, I don't know, have you ever um, watched CNN or, or Fox News or MSNBC or C-SPAN or, or whatever, and you have seen a very important person with a red or a blue tie stand before a podium, and on that podium there is a circular disc. They know that, we know that as the seal of the President of the United States. And sometimes it's a less important person, also wearing a red or blue tie or something like that, and he might have a seal on there, and it's the seal of the Vice President of the United States of America. Do you see that? That seal then represents their authority, sure. Um, it re represents who they're in, it, it's identity for them. The seal was, was used like that in ancient times. It was also used uh, to... Let me put it this way. It was used maybe like uh, another illustration would be uh, cattle branding. You know, when cattle get a little brand on their hindquarters, they get their little... Um, the girls like to talk about their cutie mark, right? I don't know. Any bronies out there? Okay, please don't raise your hand. Um, so... So it's that brand, it's that identity, it's, it's this cattle belongs to this person. Don't harm it, don't touch it, it doesn't belong to you. It's like my girls and their little label, label maker. And they love that label maker. And I see things all around the house all the time. I see deodorant with a label on it. This is mine, don't touch it, it's got my name on it. I see um, phone chargers. I see chapstick with a label on it. Don't touch my chapstick. This belongs to Ariel or Maddie or, or Mommy. This is Mommy's. Don't. My wife loves to label things too. And it usually has her name and then don't touch girls. Because it belongs to that person. It belongs to them, and so it's protected. Don't touch, don't harm, don't judge these people. The wrath of God is not on those who have been sealed. This mark of ownership, this mark of security, this is a mark of protection. It actually was introduced, this idea of a mark, especially here in verse 3, the, the reference to the servants of God with a mark or a seal on their foreheads, originates in Ezekiel chapter 9 verse 4. And in that passage, I think you have it on the screen, you can look at it there. In that passage, the Lord said to him, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. Now, these opening chapters of Ezekiel were messages and visions from, uh, or from God through Ezekiel to God's people saying, people, what's going on? I called you. I rescued you. I gave you a name. I, I gave you your, your land and your city. And I gave you a temple. And, I, and I've been there. And I, your, my presence has been with you. But yet you continue to reject me and walk away from me. What is happening here? So he's doing some corrective action, if you want to put it that way, with his people. But he's saying there are faithful ones. 
There are those who are true. I'm going to distinguish between those who are truly mine and those who are in open, outright rebellion against me. And I don't want my people to be harmed. So here we are in Revelation 7. And that's exactly what we see happening. The faithful Israel is being protected. Well then... Well, that's interesting because then in verses 4 through 8, we, uh, John says, I heard, that's a very important phrase, I heard, with his ears, he heard the number of those who were sealed. And he hears a number, 144,000. And, and they're, they're listed. So he hears this, this heavenly roll call, if you will. The 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes. 12,000 times 12 is 144,000. Check my math on that. I'm not really a math guy. But I believe that adds up. And what, what John is hearing and then putting in this vision and, and revealing to us is this symbolic number of the completeness or the totality of God's people. And this is confirmed for us as we move into the, the next section of this vision when he actually turns and looks. So now he's not just hearing the number, he's looking at them and he sees a great multitude that no one can count from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. What he's seeing here or hearing here, this 144,000, is not just a, a, a bit or a, a portion of all of God's people. It's that 144,000 is a portion of all of the people who are going to be rescued. It's those who are sealed, but it's a symbolic number of all of the people from everywhere who belong to God because of Jesus. And that is an encouraging thing. These are the people who have been rescued by Him. They have been rescued, as, as the Apostle Paul put it, back in Colossians chapter 1, a very, uh, I think, a very important and significant verse for us to understand. Uh, who are you? If you have put your faith in Jesus, you have been rescued. And, and there are others around us who are yet to be rescued who are still in the domain of darkness. And so what does he say in, in, first, or excuse me, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 13? He says, He has delivered us, think rescue or save, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. That's what God has done to those who have come to Him in faith. He has rescued them. They are, as verse 3 says, the servants of God. As Jesus called them, they are his disciples. As, as John looks, they are the great multitude that are standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They have been rescued by him. Those who stand before the throne and before the Lamb have been rescued by Him. They have also been transformed by Him. They have been transformed by Him. So then we look again at this, at, at this, this multitude, this great multitude. And, and what are they doing or what do they look like? There they are in verse 9, clothed in white robes. They have palm branches in their hands, which is a, which is a common symbol of that time and in, in biblical times of a symbol of 
of worship and glory. And they would wave those palm branches before the one they were worshiping or before the one that they were declaring their salvation, their Savior. And that's what they're doing. They're, they're singing, salvation belongs to our God and who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then in verses 11 to 12, we see the angels who are standing and the elders and the four living creatures. And they actually go to their faces. They fall on their faces and they worship God and they give Him praise and blessing and glory for all that He has done for ever and ever, right? And so here's this wonderful worship moment, one of many worship moments in the book of Revelation. They are all standing there, but then the elder says, verse 13, um, I, I love this, this happens often in prophetic literature where a character uh, in the vision um, interacts with the one seeing the vision. So the elder looks over at John and says, hey, who are these people? Who are these people? Who is this great multitude? And John's like, um, you know, I don't know. I can see John shrugging his shoulders and saying, you tell me. You tell me. You're so smart. You're an elder. You're standing before the throne. You know, I'm just a visitor here. And so he does. He explains, these are the people these clothed in white robes, they have washed their robes, they've made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Um, what is significant about the white robes, about um, uh, making them white or washing them, it's a symbol of transformation. It's a symbol of change. Part of that is identity, to, to wear a robe that is given to you, is to then bear the, the, the new identity or the identity that is given to you. Remember when Jacob had his sons, he had his 12 sons, and he had this one young son that he loved more than the rest, and he was really good at showing favoritism. And so in order for all of his sons and everyone else to know, he gave him a, 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 a robe. That one was a multicolored uh, robe that he wore, saying, you, you are special to me. You are unique. That's part of who your identity is. And then we see this, this, this robe imagery repeated in the New Testament. We see it in some of the parables of Jesus, in which Jesus invites uh, through, through the, the story, through the parable of, of a king or a great master, inviting all of his servants to come for a great feast. And as they come in, he clothes them. They, he gives them their, their raiments, their garments, new garments for the, 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 the feast or, or the banquet. And they receive that as new identity. And then these white robes appear in the book of Revelation, in chapter 3, as he speaks to one of the churches and he says, Hey, you, you, you church, wake up. Strengthen what remains. Do it. You're about to die. But don't die. Hold fast to me. Repent of what you've been doing. He's saying, hey, I know that there are some, there are some in your city who have not, and he uses this metaphorical phrase, they've not soiled their garments. Their, their garments that they wear are not ruined. That they walk before me faithfully. They're worthy. And let me tell you this, if you will thus conquer, if you will overcome, if you will hold fast to me, they will all be, you will all be clothed in white garments and I will never blot your name out of the book of life. They're going to change. Something's going to be different. And if you want to hear a biblical example of the ultimate, the ultimate symbol of transformation in white garments, think of Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration. There he is, he and his three disciples in their ordinary, ordinary clothes, traveling clothes, traveling up on the mountain, and in an instant, he is transformed. He's transfigured. And now they see him in glory. They see who he really, truly is. There he is, in white 
and clothes whiter than any person could bleach them, right? You've probably seen images like that. Maybe you've seen it in something like, or read it, in something like The Lord of the Rings. Uh, we were reading this just the other day, weren't we? We were reading this story of, of, of this, uh, this poor little halfling hobbit, right? Who, who is, who is trying to take this ring to a safe place and, and accomplish this, this huge mission and being thrown into all of this. And at one point where he's sick and he's injured and he's hurt and he looks up and he sees somebody coming to, towards him all in white, all glowing, all beautiful. And he's just so amazed. And he, it's, it's stunning and amazing and, and he almost feels like he should be worshiping, right? What he sees is, is one of the elves, these immortal of the story. These are the immortal people of the story. And when you look at them normally, they're just, they look pretty amazing and they're beautiful, they're beautiful beings, but they're just, they just wear ordinary clothes and ordinary shoes. And, and you can touch them and feel them and they're ordinary people. But every once in a while, like this one character, he got a glimpse behind, behind all of that. And he saw that person for who they really are. One of the never dying, right? And so here, here are all of these people. And check it out. They're from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages. But that doesn't necessarily matter anymore. They're, they're, they're described as coming from all those places, but look, they're all wearing the same thing, and they're all in the same place, and now their identity is not based on the tribe they came from, or the nation that they were a part of, or the, or the people group that they identified with, or the language that they speak. Now, they are identified by the one they worshipped. Now, they're identified by the person on the throne, and, and by the Lamb. That's what gives them meaning. That's what gives them purpose. And so there they are clothed in white. And, and he says they've come out of this great tribulation. And some people think that's a, uh, an act, a limited period of time on the earth that's going to be greater than anything ever before. And it might be. But for the people who John was speaking to, they're thinking of cycles of great tribulations that they have encountered over and over and over again. Like some of these people are thinking, my whole life has been a tribulation. And I can't wait to be changed and transformed and to be given my real, true identity and the clothing that I will wear before the, the throne and before the Lamb. And I think that's what he's talking about. He's talking about all people everywhere. Not just a select few. The servants of God in Revelation always refer to all of God's people. Any of God's people. From every time and place. And there they are. The great multitude that no one could count. Standing before them. And they have been changed. And the glory that they're experiencing and the glory that they are viewing is like nothing they have ever seen or heard of before. Paul, when he writes to the church in Corinth, he, he's trying to, trying to latch onto that. He's trying to capture something of that vision of glory, of what is ahead of us. The here and now is this mission of making disciples who make disciples. But in the midst of it, we're, we're working and we're making disciples in the domain of darkness. It, it, we're making disciples on a sinking ship. And we're wondering, how are we going to stand? How are we going to get through that? And oftentimes, the darkness seems to overwhelm us. How can we get through this? Paul, man... He helps us out, I think, but sometimes I wonder why he uses the words he does. And here's what he says in 2 Corinthians. I'm trying to get to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. He says this. 
for this light momentary affliction. Does anyone feel like the things they're going through are a light momentary affliction? <laughs> but, but Paul has been granted an eternal perspective. On his own life, as he describes the hardships he went through, and on the lives of the people he's speaking to, this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Do you see what he's trying to say? Yes, you're going through terrible things right now. Yes, this is difficult. Yes, you are afflicted. Yes, you, are, you, are, you feel uh, pressed in, but you're not crushed. You're not abandoned. You're not going to be overwhelmed by the flood. The fire is not going to consume you. You have a greater promise. There is a greater glory waiting for God's people. And they will be transformed out of this world into a new existence before the throne and before the Lamb. And that's powerful. And that's a promise for all his people. Look, look at what the, the elder reveals to John. There before the throne, they serve him day and night in his temple. Well, there's night. Explain to me how there's night when there's no sun. But anyway, it's all part of this wonderful revelation. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. You know why? He shelters them because they have been sealed. They're not going to be harmed by the judgment. They're not going to receive the wrath of God on them. They are going to be preserved. And, and check out their experience. Verse 16. They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst anymore. I don't think that means that they're not going to eat and drink. Because there is a banquet there waiting for them. But they're not going to wonder where their next meal is coming from. They're not going to have this aching feeling of something's just not right. I have a longing for something that can't be fulfilled. He's saying that's all going to be fulfilled. You're going to eat and be satisfied. You're going to drink. And you're going to be, your, your thirst is actually going to be quenched. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching heat. The lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. Of all things, the lamb is actually the shepherd. And he's going to guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's a beautiful vision of what our future with God in his presence is going to be like. And how did we get there? He says in verse 14, they washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. That's how. That's how people go from here to there. Through the blood of Jesus who lived and died for our sake. Let's go back to Colossians 1 verses 3, 13 and 14. Or, and look at verse 14 as well. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Sin is on this world. Sin, sin is, the, is, the, is the cause of the sinking ship. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the rescue. Jesus is that lifeboat, so to speak. Forgiveness of sins is offered to all who come to him in faith. Who all, to all who hear, come, come, all you who are thirsty and drink from the waters of life. Uh, friends, Maybe we could put it this way. This is not a hard one. The river church is meant to be a place where people can come and drink from the waters of life. The river, the river is the source of life. It's not you and me. 
It's Jesus who's flowing through this church the lives of every person who has put their faith in him and is meant to flow right out of us to others. The invitation, I'm seriously considering advocating for this at the opening of our door. Come, all who are thirsty, and drink freely from the waters of life. I want this River Church to be a church of disciples who make disciples. I want it to be a church that is offering this, this living hope, this living water to all who are thirsty because outside are people who are dying of thirst. Uh, there are people who are in the domain of darkness who are longing for, and they, they may not even realize that the longing that they have is only going to be fulfilled in the life-giving water of Christ. But they are. So, as we look at this vision and we, and we consider the, the throne and the Lamb and the fact that those who stand before them have been rescued and transformed by Him, this is not a, an I'll fly away moment. This is not a one day I'm going to die, I'm going to leave this world, it's going to be so great, I'm going to be with Jesus, hallelujah. It's, a, it's an opportunity for us to realize that if we've been rescued and transformed, we're now part of His people. We're now called to look outside of our homes and outside of the doors of our meeting places and to see that there are people who are hungering and thirsting and dying without hope, without Jesus. Why should we make disciples? Because there are people around us who aren't rescued and transformed. They haven't been saved. They're still lost without Him. They're so far from God. We don't know who will be standing. Which characters in the story of your life will be saved? When you think about the people that you know, they may be in your family. Uh, they may be cousins or extended family. They may be friends. They may be neighbors. They may be co-workers. Friends, we have a vision, a true revelation of what the end is going to be. The end of the story is here. But we don't know who will be rescued. We don't know who's going to be standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And we have a part. We have, we have the privilege and, the, and a heavy responsibility to be doing what God has asked us to do. I have a friend who, who I love, who's so motivating, so encouraging. I don't know if we all, if we think the same way about every theological little tidbit or whatever, but it, one of the things that he um, says over and over again, I've heard him say this and I've heard him tweet it and all the rest, he said, our, our mission is to increase the population of heaven and decrease the population of hell. Uh, and that's kind of a, I think that's a pretty colorful way of saying there are people who need to be rescued and transformed. Will we, will we be part of that by God's grace and the power that he enables us to do that very thing outside of our doors? And Lord willing, over the next few weeks, we will look in, in further detail about what that looks like. What that, what's, is that, what's that actually like? How can we go about doing that? But today, I want to do something. I want to ask you to do something with me that I, honestly, I rarely do. But I think this could be important for us. If you have a connection card... Maybe you want to look at it right now inside your bulletin. And on the back side of that connection card, we've added something. A little box there in the center of the connection card. It says, my three. 
I am praying for these to experience life transformation. Maybe, I don't know, it's not maybe, I know, I know that you know people who need to experience life transformation. These are people who are far from God. They don't claim to be Christians. You know that for sure. Or, they may claim to be a Christian, but they're not necessarily walking with him. Maybe, they're, maybe they say, well, I, 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 I'm a Christian, but... And maybe you don't really see evidence of, of God working in their lives. And that's okay. I, we're not here to judge people. We're not, here to, we're not here to try to put people on lists and say, okay, these are the terrible people and we're the good people. Uh, I want to invite you to pray right now for three people that you know in your life. And maybe it's only one, but maybe three. Maybe you can find three. Three people that you know who need to be rescued and transformed. Would you pray for them? Would you put their name on this list and, in, and, and allow us to pray for them too as a church? We would love to pray for them. And you can, you can check that box to say okay to share if you're okay for a wider group of people to know those names and pray for them. Or if you don't, just, just say, just don't, mark, don't check that box or just say, hey, keep these names to yourself, but go ahead and share this other prayer request and that's okay too. Maybe today, as we start thinking about how we're going to actually do what our commander intends for us to do, to be disciples who make disciples, we start with prayer for the people who need to be rescued and transformed by him. Let's do that together. Shall we? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for what you have done for us. We, we know that we cannot stand before you, before your throne, except through the blood of Jesus, through the blood of the Lamb, shed for us, giving us a way to receive mercy and forgiveness and ultimately to receive grace with you for all eternity. Lord, I just pray that you will, you will, number one, just stamp that on our hearts and impress it on us that we'll never forget what our ultimate purpose and our ultimate goal is and, and where we will ultimately be. And God, I just pray too that that will not just motivate us to, that will not motivate us to just huddle up together and only sing songs about heaven and about how great that will be. But Lord, it will motivate us to seek and to save those who are lost, those who are far from you to participate in your rescue and transformation work. I pray that you will help us to do that by your grace, by the power that you enable us to, to do it. And you, that we'll do it in the name of Jesus. Amen.